Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Christmas Wrapping by The Waitresses, a modern-day new wave holiday classic that was written by Chris Butler, one of four guests who will be joining us for this very special end-of-the-year episode of Songcraft. We'll also chat with Randy Brooks, who penned the always polarizing Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, Chris Eaton, who co-wrote the classic Breath of Heaven with Amy Grant, and Songwriters Hall of Famer Paul Williams, who is best known for Rainbow Connection, but who also wrote all the songs for The Muppet Christmas Carol. Enjoy the conversations, then visit the webpage for this 131st episode of our podcast at songcraftshow.com to hear our ultimate holiday playlist, featuring 150 titles and 150 artists with no repeated songs and no repeated performers. It's our gift to you and our way of saying thanks for another great year of Songcraft. Part one. I can smell the snow right now, Scott. What does snow smell like? Oh, it's beautiful. Did you pee on it? (laughs) (laughs) I can hear the candy canes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Merry Christmas. I can taste the mistletoe. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Wait, did you just say thanks? (laughs) I did. People don't say thanks when you say Merry Christmas. It's not like, you know. Nice shoes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, hey, Merry Christmas back at you, my friend. Yeah, this isn't like when you're in the airport and someone says, have a good trip, and you say, you too, and it's embarrassing. You you should respond in kind. I think I already did a couple times. Yeah, well, we've we've been working through this this little intro here for a bit. Um, Well, when you think about Christmas, you think about New Year's. And a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. Maybe uh, they want to drop 10 pounds. They want to start going to the gym, whatever it is. Um, There might even be some songwriters out there that are like, you know what? I'm going to take the next step in my pursuit of songwriting in the new year. I'm going to do something concrete to advance my efforts. And if you're a songwriter who wants your songs to get heard by people who can potentially do something with them, you've got to have a good demo. You've got to have something that stands up to the, to the quality that other competing songwriters out there are submitting. Um, and maybe you feel a little overwhelmed, maybe feel a little daunted by the idea of creating a demo. Maybe you don't have the means to do so yourself. Maybe you can't play all the instruments or you don't know how to, you know, run pro tools and you need somebody that can, can help you create a studio quality demo that can really compete with what's out there. And if that's you and you're ready to take that next step in the new year, we definitely want to suggest that you check out our friends at Pearl Snap Studios. That's pearlsnapstudios.com. Justin and his team over there, uh, no matter the genre, no matter where you're located, they can work remotely. Um, they can uh, can help you out. Uh, and, you know, maybe you're not sure if you're ready to take that step yet, but you can definitely reach out to them and have a conversation about it, and they'll help you figure out uh, what makes sense. They're not going to pressure you. Um, they're good, good folks there. Um, but they'll talk about the options and then you can figure out uh, how you want to proceed. You know, I'm going to disagree with all of that. <laughs> uh, 
I think it's a better idea to just have all of our listeners go hire a drummer, uh-huh. find yourself a bass player right. and a guitarist, right. um, rent out a rehearsal space to teach them the song, uh-huh. go find a studio with a producer and engineer, right. hire all of them separately and, and pay the hourly rate for the studio, right. and then go uh, spend like a full weekend in there getting the demo done. That, that just sounds easier to me. And many, many thousands of dollars too. Yeah, Forget I, that part. I, I think that's a much more prudent way to go about it. Yeah, you're right. I was wrong about that whole Pearl Snap Studios totally. thing. Totally. But, you know, if there's anybody out there that wants to be wrong with me, you can totally. still go to PearlSnapStudios.com. If you want to just be ridiculous, then go to <laughs> PearlSnapStudios.com. But otherwise, I would say go ahead and spend thousands of dollars and, you know, uh, incalculable amounts of time. Yeah, why not? Makes sense. So, you know, I, I've been thinking about Christmas, and, and I'm not one of those people that started playing my Christmas music right after Halloween. Uh, I like <laughs> to wait until Thanksgiving. So I waited until Thanksgiving, and then I've been playing the Christmas music. And it's right. my, my wife and I kind of diverge when it comes to Christmas music. Um, and uh, honestly, kind of like Christmas vibe in general. Right. Because of the way, you know, that I grew up celebrating Christmas, my tendency is to kind of bring the lights down, right? light some candles, and listen to some achingly sad Christmas music. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I, I don't know what it is about Christmas for, for me and for some of us that, that we like to just gravitate to these just maudlin songs. Yeah. Um, for instance, we have this album called December by this piano player, George Winston. Sure. And it just, it just sounds like, it just sounds like a, a funeral. Is, is happening <laughs> right um it sounds like a good friday cd more right. than a, a christmas cd you know even breath of heaven this song that that uh, we're going to talk about in this episode with that chris eaton wrote i mean it, it starts with this haunting quiet sad piano right um, it's reflective yeah and uh it, it got me thinking about the there you can almost just like separate Christmas songs by genre. Well, is it a happy Christmas song or, or sad Christmas song? Right. I don't know why sad Christmas is a thing, <laughs> right? but it certainly is. I, I, I think I'll Be Home for Christmas may be the saddest Christmas song ever. I agree with that. The Al Green version of I'll Be Home for Christmas uh, is my favorite, and that song is so sad. Well, it's and, great because and... you can spend an entire day listening to it. It's that slow. <laughs> right. That's what I love about it is yeah. that it's sad. And actually my wife and I are kind of different too. She feels she doesn't like sad Christmas music. Christmas music in general kind of makes her sad. Right. Um and I'm like, yeah, that's why it's great. Yeah. Uh, Cuz even songs that that aren't sad like Tennessee Christmas by Amy Grant. Yeah. I don't know how well known that song is, but where we grew up in Nashville it was certainly well known. That song is wistful. Yeah. Um but uh <laughs> it makes me sad. It makes me sad only because my mom played it in the house when I was a kid. Maybe yeah. I'm just sad I'm not a kid anymore. Well, I don't know what it is. This could be the most like Gen X thing ever. Like where we just <laughs> we just can't have a holiday. You know, that's just, just yeah. happy. We, we have can't to have turn nice it into things. some kind of drama. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's all the Karen Carpenter Christmas songs that we've heard, and you know, maybe I, I don't know if those are sad just because they're sad, or just because Karen Carpenter sang them and her story is sad. I, I don't right. know. I mean, no place like home for the holidays is pretty jaunty. Yeah, like, and it's hard for me to be sad when I'm listening to you know Jingle Bells, right? But there's always a time where we kind of like let's let's calm it down a little bit. And right. here comes Oh Come Oh Come Emmanuel. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, these these minor key, and, and some of it could be you know you take a song like that and it's got kind of that old like um, you know Hebrew Jewish influence with the minor chords, right? And some of those kind of haunting melodies, and maybe that's got a bit of something to do with it. Yeah, and there's stuff about Christmas, I guess, that's supposed to be reflective. Yeah. I mean, you know. Well, it, it, maybe this is part of it, too. Like, you know, I'll be home for Christmas 
if only in my dreams. Yeah. You know, this idea of coming home for Christmas is great when it works. Right. But there's a lot of people that can't make it right home. Or yeah. That, that can't make the trip, you right. know? And so you've got please come home for Christmas. Right. Yeah. You know, you have a few of these songs that are that are that you know, achingly sad. I don't know. Or the ones that are kind of idealized family Christmas holiday joy. It's like, maybe you don't have a great family. Maybe you're estranged from your family. Maybe there's tension and, you know, it's, and so you're sad because it reminds you that, you know, things, you don't have the Norman Rockwell life. Or could it be this, Scott? Could it be then the everyday hustle and bustle of our lives? We never have time to grieve. Until we finally hit that Christmas vacation, that that Christmas break, when we're we're off of work, we're off of school, we got a little downtime. It's quiet outside. Maybe we're snowed in, can't leave the house, and all those things we've been waiting to grieve. Hmm. We finally get about a week to just sit there and let them all land upon us. Wow! Right around the time family shows up. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's heavy, man. That's it, a good theory. It's possible, right? That's maybe a good theory. maybe it's just what silence brings out of us. Right. You know. I will say that there are other Christmas songs, though. The Happy Christmas Song category, you know, yeah. when I say when I hear Ray Charles sing the Little Drummer Boy, we've talked about this before. Yeah, I hate that song, dude. The Ray Charles version of Little Drummer Boy, I hate the Little Drummer Boy too. The Ray Charles version of Little Drummer Boy is so funky. It's got such a groove. It makes me feel great. It's like if Christy Brinkley cooked me Indian food. <laughs> <laughs> what well, does that mean? I, I don't like Indian food. Uh-huh. I don't like it at all. Right. If Christy Brinkley cooked me dinner, I'd be happy that she was cooking me something. Right. And I might just enjoy the vehicle. Right. You know, <laughs> but I still don't want that Indian food. So that's how I feel about Ray Charles singing Little Drummer Boy. Like, it's nice that he sings something. And that dude could sing anything and right. I'd probably be around for the party. Right. But I'm still going to walk away being like, I don't like that song. How about Christmas Baby, Please Come Home? Uh, Man, I, I don't. I don't love that song because I just don't feel like it's much of a song. Like it's just sort of like this like repeated kind of loop thing. It just kind of gets shouted more fervently as it goes on. Right. See, now I like that song. How about the Springsteen version of Santa Claus is coming? I love that. Okay. I love that because it just falls apart. So that (laughs) just falls apart from like the moment it starts. So that, that song makes you happy. Oh yeah. I'm not saying that. Yeah. Uh, it, but it makes me also sad because there aren't bands like the E Street Band around anymore. Like, I mean, there's, I can always take a Christmas song and like, find a reason to some sadness. Find somewhere. a reason to get depressed. Yeah, I, I think the ones that probably make me like the happiest are, you know, um, Stevie Wonder, What Christmas Means to Me. It's a great one. Um, that's super fun. Um, Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. I, that's I never killer. get enough of that song. That's great. Yeah. Totally is the the nod to uh, to the Phil Spector thing. Yeah, love it. But then you can't go wrong with that King Cole and you yeah. know Bing Crosby and the the OGs. You know, uh, Donny Hathaway this Christmas, incredible. And honestly, man, nobody else should have recorded that, and yeah. everybody else has recorded it. Yeah, but it, leave it alone. It's a dock of the bay. Leave it. Don't. You, <laughs> totally. No one needs to cover it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I personally, I love Christmas music. We have created a songcraft uh christmas mix um which we posted last year we're gonna we've got it posted again this year it's on the uh web page for this episode um it's got a ton of songs no repeated songs and no repeated artists wow which is quite a feat yeah it is uh and it's hours long so turn that sucker on and just let it play for your entire holiday season and uh as we wrap up at the end of the year here with our final episode of 2019 We are thankful for you, the listeners. Thank you for another great year. And uh, thank you for letting us get on here and yak about stuff and bring you some great interviews. We really appreciate you guys. Now, Merry Christmas. Thanks.
Chris Butler has led an interesting life. He was a protester at Kent State when the Ohio National Guard opened fire on him and his fellow students in 1970. He earned a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest recorded pop song in history, and he currently lives in Jeffrey Dahmer's childhood home in Akron, Ohio. As Chris explains, it's a beautiful house that nobody wanted, so he got a great deal. He is best known, however, for conceptualizing and leading the 1980s new wave group The Waitresses, which found success with I Know What Boys Like and their perennial holiday classic Christmas Wrapping. Chris went on to produce Freedy Johnston, Joan Osborne, and others. He continues to record, produce, and release music under the banner of his own Future Fossil Music. But it's his unlikely holiday hit that remains the songwriting income gift that keeps on giving. Though it's been recorded by the Spice Girls, Kate Nash, Miranda Cosgrove, Bella Thorne, the Glee cast, and Kylie Minogue with Iggy Pop, the original Waitress's version of Christmas wrapping is still the one you're most likely to hear each year at the mall. Now the calendar's just one page, of course I am excited. Tonight's the night I've set my mind Well, I first became aware of the waitresses uh, when I was in high school, and and I was working at a uh, at a clothing store in the mall, and it played the same three hour loop of music every single day for the year and a half that I worked there, and tucked right wow. between uh, "Walking on Broken Glass" by Annie Lennox and "Mr. Big Stuff" by Gene Knight was "I Know What Boys Like." <laughs> <laughs> so I heard "I Know What Boys Like" uh, many a time. Um, what I didn't know back then was that the waitresses uh, was actually Actually, the brainchild of one man. Um, tell us how the the concept first came together for you. It's roughly 1977, and I am in the most wonderful local band uh, in Akron, Ohio, northeastern Ohio. They are legends. They are going on their 50th year. Wow! They're called 1560-75, aka the Numbers Band, <laughs> and I was playing bass. And into my life popped somebody I had met in 1970, and that's a fellow named Liam Sternberg. Anyway, he comes back to the Akron-Cleveland area. There is the phenomenon going on about uh, CBTVs and some of the records, some of the bands that released records, 75, 76, Talking Heads and whatever, uh, television, Ramones, whatever. And um, Liam, being uh, kind of an arrogant guy, says, huh, we can do better than that, and um, <laughs> let's write some songs. And uh, one night at a after both our gigs, um, he was playing an Elvis cover band at a bowling alley, Elvis, you know, impersonator band, and I was in the numbers band, which is very time consuming. And we realized we don't have time, uh, you know, form a side project, but we got we're beginning to write songs. 
So the um, solution is to invent a non-existent band. <laughs> um, his was Jane Eyre and the Belvedere's, <laughs> and mine was The Waitresses. So we had these fake names, we had some songs, and um, we had a, a fanzine that can tell whopping lies about our non-existent bands. And, um, I had come up with a bunch of songs, and there was a local um, uh, label started by a fellow named Nick Nicholas, and his label was uh, uh, Clone Records, and he liked this Waitresses idea, and uh, he put out a 45, and that's great. And I had then, by then, I had been fired by the Numbers Band, which is uh, another story, um, and had joined a band called Tin Huey. And then I came up with a song called I Know What Boys Like, which I was embarrassed because Tin Huey was a, very much a, um, an art band uh, into the Velvet Underground and Kraut Rock and all the Canterbury musicians. Right. And I had come up with this ditty. I was, I was a, I was a very much a baby songwriter, and whatever popped out was all I had. As opposed to, I think now I can maybe, you know, come up with a brief, right, and, and go for it. But at that time, it was like, you know, whatever, just banging around on the guitar. And I came up with this "I Know What Boys Like" song and made a demo of it on a four-track machine in uh, my apartment. And but I needed a singer and. When I was in the Numbers Band, um, one of the fans of the Numbers Band, it turned out to be the drummer Dave Robinson's girlfriend, uh, was a kind of girl about town named Patty Donahue. And um, one time I uh, went to our local watering hole called Waters Cafe around lunchtime and literally stood on a chair and said, I, I got this song, I need a woman singer. <laughs> And way in the back, Patty raised her hand and said, yeah, yeah, I can do this. Uh, anyway, we found ourselves in, again in Rick Daly's basement, and Rick um, had a you know a gorgeous matched pair of Neumann U87 microphones, um, and we used one of them and recorded the vocal to I Know What Boys Like. Wow. And um, still very much an imaginary band until I moved to New York in 1979, and I had an acetate of the recording, and uh, at the time, uh, DJs were the gatekeepers, and this one particular DJ named Mark Kamens at a club called Danceteria uh, was one of the tops in town, and I went there one evening, and with uh, fear and trembling, uh, asked him if he would play my acetate. And he did, and he played it about five or six times that evening because the crowd liked it. And um, the next day, I got a phone call from uh, the people at uh, Island, but a division of Island called Antilles. And um, they said they really liked this uh, song of mine, and could I come up to the office? And I did. And they said, well, we want to sign this as a single. I never got them. I know what boys like. I know what guys want. I know what boys like. Boys like me. Don't you your special? I might get you. You're so much different. I might get you. Would you like that? I might get you. And, and then, <clears throat> because this was the age of the 45 single, you need a B-side. And they said, so where's your band? 
uh, with my band. Mind. Uh, <laughs> back in Ohio, I said, um, you got any other songs? And I said, sure. No, of course. I didn't <laughs> songs. But I, 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 and I came up with a song and I called Patty and I said, where are you in your life right now? She said, well, I'm out of school, but I'm still in Kent and I'm working as a waitress. I said, well, uh, do you want to come to New York City and, uh, you know, sing on this other song I got? And she said, sure, what the hell? And I, I literally wired her my last 50 bucks and hmm. put her on, you know, her boyfriend, you know, put her on the bus, kissed her goodbye, and I uh, got together some wonderful local mu- musicians, uh, came up with an arrangement, did this song called No Guilt, and there was our B-side. You know, I had a few more tunes and said, well, you know, uh, should we make a real band out of this and give it a go? Uh, and then she said, sure, what the hell? You know, I got nothing else to do. There's nothing good on TV tonight. So um, <laughs> we, we might as well. How did you end up writing and recording Christmas rapping? Uh, what Island did was somehow sell our contract or somehow over to a New York label called ZE Records. Now, ZE was a um, uh, very interesting label. They they had a bunch of weirdos. They had a bunch of very glossy. They they called themselves Mutant Disco. Um, uh, it was run by a fellow named Michael Zocco. Somehow, in early summer, 81, uh, I hope I'm getting my chronology right. I think so. Michael came up with the idea of, I'm going to, you know, for our label, wouldn't it be great if we made a Christmas record with all the artists, which would be very mutant again, because, you know, some of them are are pretty twisted. You know, (laughs) Alan Vega is not someone who comes to mind when you think of warm and fuzzy. (laughs) This was kind of the last thing I needed, like a hole in the head, because we were very busy. I'm trying to write uh, a lot of songs. Um, uh, we were on the road. I think we kind of hoped that he would forget about it. But a little while, a little while later, in, in August, he said, okay, I, I, I booked you into um, Electric Ladyland, which is, you know, Jimi Hendrix's uh, studio on 8th Street, Top Shelf. Yeah. And um, ready to record the Christmas song. <laughs> so, shit, I, I, I had to... <laughs> you know, come up with something, and I put, took a little bit of this, and took a little bit of that, and um, one of the, there are many ironies inside this tune, but one of which is I, 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 I had a really rough family upbringing, and Christmas was as dismal as dismal can be, and um, I was pretty much a Scrooge, and, uh, you know, didn't want to hear about it, did everything I could do to avoid it. At the time, I was working as a freelance writer, and most of most all of New York kind of stops at December first, and especially the freelance people, uh, if they've had a good year, well, I was pretty scuffling, and so um, I'm like way down on the on the uh, rolodex of people to call, and I couldn't afford to turn things down, and I had like five deadline writing projects, um, you know, that were due, uh, and and. It, it, it was all very complicated, and uh, I didn't have time or interest in really doing this, but it was it's the head of the label who asked us to do this, and, right. you know, that, that has some sway. Sure. So um, I came up with this thing, 
And I have some cassettes of me kind of grunting into a tape recorder trying to write this thing. And we rehearsed it a little bit. Um, I, can, I can take credit for things like Corn Line and the initial bass lick, but I have to give credit for, uh, you know, Tomars for the, for the uh, arrangement. We, uh, we got our friend uh, Dave Buck um, to play trumpet. And, of course, Tracy's bass part, um, you know, she took, she took that little riff and just ran with it. And, you know, frankly, her bass playing makes the song. Oh, the bass line's amazing. And that, and that horn line is, that, that horn line stands up with like some, you know, Motown horn lines. I mean, it's, it's so recognizable. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I was thinking, you know, a little stacks fold, but, um, but yeah, Motown, whatever. I mean, the idea was, the idea of using big thick brass was it's kind of like a Salvation Army, you know, um, Bach brass chorale or something, you know, yeah. marching band. Um, Christmas in New York, you know, is as wonderful as all the other Christmas in New York songs have celebrated. There is kind of magic in the yeah. air, you know. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's a feeling of good. This is a pretty, you know, grumpy, fast moving city and. Things do lighten up, and and you do have, you know, snow in Central Park, and people ice skating, and uh, you know the windows at Macy's or or Lord and Taylor's or uh, B Altman's, you know, and uh, they do start roasting chestnuts, you know, uh, next to the uh, hot dogs, um, you know, that are bubbling away, uh, and, and the food uh, stands, and um, it it has a there is a real secular kind of magic that takes over in New York. And I know, I knew that, that I wanted to write a secular song. And I also knew that I needed to somehow capture that mood of, of, you know, New York's Christmas spirit, making everything all right, even for just a little bit. You know, something secular working in the background that um, people can feel, but even if you don't acknowledge it, it it, it can come into play uh, in your life. And that's kind of how the arc of the, of the story plays out. I mean, it's pretty corny. I mean, the ending is like, <laughs> you know, it's pretty corny, and obviously she's, She's pretty, the character's pretty cynical, you know, worn out and just wants a break. And so all of that kind of came together to make the story. And is it true, is it true that you, you finished the lyrics in the cab on the way to the studio? Literally. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and um, that's, you know, I know that's kind of a cliche uh, among songwriters, but it is true. And um, Patty had worked on what I had kind of before, but... Uh, you know, we we met a wonderful, we had a wonderful staff engineer named Mike Frondelli, and um, we were in Studio B, I believe, and uh, uh, we recorded this thing, I think, in, I think we tracked it the first day, uh, overdubs, vocals the second day, and mixed it the third day, boom, that's it, Forgot, you know, and then turned it in and pretty much forgot about it. Um, because it felt like a throwaway. Hmm. I mean, we gave it full attention because we're kind of pros and perfectionists. Right. You know, it wasn't slop, but um, it wasn't, you know, I don't think anybody considered it to be 
you know, anything other than uh, honoring a request from our label of huh. head. Wow. Well, this was the same era when Debbie Harry included her version of rapping in Blondie's big hit, Rapture. Um, and the Waitress's lead singer, Patty Donahue, kind of had that similar, disaffected, not quite singing, not quite rapping style. Um, and you were obviously based in New York at that time. I'm curious if you were consciously soaking up those early hip-hop influences. Well, um, sure, because, I mean, New York at that time period, this is 79, 80, 81, 82, all that. Um, you had phenomenal, phenomenal music scenes. You had uh, 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 Latin music, uh, uh, the salsa, salsa move was everywhere. You ha- uh, we had bands coming over from England playing at a club called Haram. Oh yeah, you still had, of course, CBGBs and all the clubs, CBGB and all the clubs going on and all that. Right, but you had you had the loft jazz phenomenon, man. You pay five bucks, you get a one Budweiser and a seat in in <laughs> in, in one of these lofts and see these you know giants of 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 jazz yeah. playing um, in these uh, kind of private uh, spaces. Yeah, you, we were very much in in uh, you're inundated with music, and yes, rap was was coming out, and the title is a pun on. Because Curtis Blows, Chris was rapping with an R. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I like the idea of rap because because the 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 story, you know, the kind of short story aspect of it is a O. Henry twist at the end, and it all wraps up neat, you know, neatly mm. and tied with a bow at the end. So yeah. Um, you know, it's been covered by the Spice Girls, Kate Nash, Miranda Cosgrove, Bella Thorne, Kylie Minogue with Iggy Pop, the cast of Glee. I mean, you know, it's like it, it's the Christmas gift that keeps on giving to you. <laughs> Why do you think that particular song has endured as a modern holiday classic? Well, um, I, I, I've tried to think about it a lot. I can throw a couple ideas out. Um uh, one thing, man, I got to tell you, um, if I listen to it on a hi-fi or whatever here, you know, a stereo system, it's okay. But boy, does it roar out of the speakers in a, in a car radio where they have all that compression and EQ. Huh. So it sounds really good on the radio. Um, most people are pretty tired by the end of the year, and there's a there's a kind of like, oh, God, now we got to face Christmas as a as a as a former Scrooge, you know, I got to tell you, it, it it blindsides me if I'm, you know, at the mall buying a present for somebody I don't really like, but I have to buy a gift for him anyway, and I'm in a grumpy mood. What is it that makes you a former that? Scrooge? <laughs> yeah, former Scrooge, reformed Scrooge, and you know, and I hear this song, and it just goes, man, you know, okay, lighten up. Whenever Randy Brooks is asked how to become a hit songwriter, he always answers, Do you think if I knew I'd still be a one-hit wonder after 40 years? That one hit was Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, one of the most loved and loathed modern holiday classics that also happens to be a multi-platinum seller that's topped the Billboard holiday singles chart multiple times. 
It even earned Randy Songwriter of the Year and Song of the Year honors from CSAC and spawned an animated Christmas special, musical toys, ornaments, greeting cards, apparel, video games, a branded hot chocolate mix, and even a Tesla dashboard app. Though the hit version of Grandma was recorded by Elmo and Patsy, the song has been covered by Ray Stevens, Mitch Ryder, The Coasters, and, most recently, by Jimmy Fallon and Dolly Parton. Randy continues to perform with his two bands and solo at songwriter events all over the country. He is resigned to the fact that, no matter what else he might accomplish in life, he is destined to be remembered for just one thing. Kind of like the John Wilkes Booth of songwriters. Grandma got run over by a reindeer Walking home from our house Christmas Eve You can say there's no such thing as Santa But as for me and Grandpa, we believe She'd been drinking too much eggnog And we begged her not to go But she forgot her medication and she staggered out the door into the snow when we found her Christmas well, morning. Well, um, so you grew up in, in Louisville, Kentucky, but um, I understand that you went to college at Vanderbilt in mine and Paul's hometown of Nashville. Um, was, it, was it living in Nashville that kind of first sparked your interest in writing songs? I had, I, when I was in high school, I used to put fake lyrics to pop songs on the radio, mostly to make make fun of girls that I like, thinking somehow <laughs> that was going to attract them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then uh, my brother and I, and he's a wonderful musician who lives in Nashville too, um, we co-wrote our first song when we were both still in high school. Hmm. And and that was, a, that was probably my first experience with songwriting, but then it wasn't until I I got to Nashville, and really my senior year in college, when I sort of got burned out in the direction that uh, the pop music was going, and I started listening to country for the first time, I, and I bought some, like, Porter Wagner albums and things like that, and I thought, you know what, some of these songs on the B-sides are, are really bad. I think anybody could write that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, usually some of the cuts on the records were by the guy's cousin and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nepotism. Well, it turns out that the the songs that I wrote were equally bad. <laughs> <laughs> but that that did get me interested, and I did, uh, and I did go around to a few publishers, you know, and play them what I had, and and I used to go around to the syndicated country shows um, that were being taped there at the time in Nashville, and and I would catch people on the breaks and ask for for songwriting suggestions or, or suggestions on how to how to get to a publisher, you know, how to get a publishing deal. And Dolly Parton, you know, just catching her on a break in the filming and wow. her saying, honey, if, if it's what you love to do and you just keep on doing it and I just know one day something good's going to happen to you. Huh. And and then she sang it on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon <laughs> last year. So amazing. Little did she know. <laughs> right, full circle. <laughs> but, but the Johnny Cash show was taping at the Ryman every week and that was free to get into. Um, all the syndicated shows were there, and uh, one of my favorite stories is one of my guys, uh, friends at the college radio station that I worked with was Gary Scruggs, Earl's son, and he would tell us when, especially a Columbia artist was in town recording, and I sneaked in one night 
to Simon and Garfunkel session at midnight wow. and wow. got to got to see Paul Simon teaching Charlie McCoy the, the harmonica part for the boxer. Man, and that's incredible. You, these days, you know, you'd have to go through guards and metal right. detectors. Right. <laughs> wow, that's wow, amazing. That's amazing. Well, uh, you eventually ended up in Texas, where you launched a band called Young Country, and it was there in the mid-70s that you wrote Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, which apparently I recently discovered was actually inspired by Merle Haggard. Yeah, um, I used to make background music tapes for the restaurant where, where we sang to make a little extra money. You know, they'd pay me to put together a reel-to-reel, like, like about an hour and a half of music or whatever. And at Christmas time, I was trying to collect all the albums I could to listen to all the Christmas songs I could, and I thought, oh my gosh, with all the albums I've got, they're still the same songs on every album, you know? Oh. And uh, so I listened to Merle Haggard's album, and he had um, great versions of Santa Claus is Coming to Town and White Christmas, but then on the backside, he had this Grandma's Christmas card, which was later on another album titled Grandma's Homemade Christmas Card, but it was this sort of dismal formula thing where he, it was a recitation hmm. over a sad accompaniment, and he told the story of Grandma being this fine artist who threw these cards in the family who all waited anxiously every year for the card to arrive, and you just got the feeling, oh no, it's going to be another one of those country songs where they, you know, they set you up for two verses, and then the card doesn't arrive in the third verse, and I just thought, that's, that's so trite and overdone, you know, and manipulative, just say so if she's dead at the very first of the song and then if you can still come up with three verses in the chorus that's that's an exercise in writing <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so that's that's what inspired me to sit down with a guitar and really try to parody Merle Haggard wow. there's a there's a three chord turnaround at the end of every chorus which is straight out of if we make it through December yeah and there's a little uh, a little scale rundown leading into a minor chord that comes out of uh, his song Daddy Frank. And my intention was, if anybody ever heard this song, they would think, "Oh, what a clever parody of Merle Haggard." <laughs> Not right. that they would take the song, you know, seriously on its own. Right, right. So you were playing in a band. You're you're writing songs. You write this kind of novelty song that's you know inspired by kind of ribbing the the Merle Haggard formula. Um, but how is it that the rest of the world somehow managed to find out about Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer? It was, um, my band was playing out in Lake Tahoe um, quite frequently at the, at the Hyatt on the north shore of Lake Tahoe. And one night uh, we were supposed to be headed back to Texas, but our, our van, the brakes froze and we had to stay over an extra night. So we went in to hear the, the band that followed us in and they were called Elmo and Patsy, and they were sort of a bluegrass Sonny and Cher act, a comedy husband and wife act. And when they found out that the previous band was in the audience, they were real nice. They said, why don't you all come up on stage and we'll close out our set doing a bunch of bluegrass songs that we all know in common. Hmm. And so the, the thinking was, you know, we were going to go up there and all get together on Rolling in My Sweet Baby's Arms or something. And one of the casino employees was in the audience on their night off, and they sent up a request for Grandma, which they were familiar with from my band singing it. And so Elmo and Patsy said, sure, go ahead and do it. So I sang uh, I sang Grandma on stage with uh, with them, and, and Elmo and Patsy 
asked me right after the show, would you come in the dressing room? We've got a tape recorder. We'd love you to record that because it's, it's our kind of song. Hmm. They, they did a lot of novelty-type songs. And so I recorded it, and I left it at that, thinking it would be really neat if some other band was singing my songs and, and announcing that I had written it so it would make me sound like more of a real songwriter, not <laughs> just for my own band. <laughs> right, right. Well, this was, this was December. In February, I got a... Uh, I got a package in the mail, and there was a cassette, and they'd gone into Nashville to a studio, and they'd recorded the song, hmm. which blew me away, you know, because now my name was going to be on the label of a record. Yeah. But but they had no no label or anything. They were just going to press up some copies and sell them from the stage at their performances in at uh, harvest festivals in California, Northern California, and, and casino shows in Northern Nevada. Um which they did, and that was, uh, I guess, 79, uh, Christmas of 79. Um, but somebody got one of their records and took it to Gene Nelson at KSFO in San Francisco. And he was a huge presence there on morning radio, you know, and for some right. reason he decided to put it on the air. And phone rang off the hook, he said, with, uh, with people saying, don't ever play that song again. <laughs> 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 which which he took as a challenge, you know. He said, if I get 25 requests to play it, I'll play it again. Right. <laughs> of course, he did. <laughs> and one thing led to another. The, the uh, Because the song did get so much controversy, you know, love, love, hate, press, um, San Francisco Chronicle came out and wrote a big half-page article on the song and on Elmo and Patsy, and that got picked up by the wire services and sent around the country, and it started started being stories on television news that I saw about it and on radio news. And at that point, people said, well, we need a little bit of the song to, to play with our stories. And so ABC Radio fed the, fed the song down the line, and the demand started to grow. And these poor performers only had what they had pressed up, you know, with their own money. Yeah. Uh, so for the next Christmas, they hired an independent distributor out of Nashville, and they went back in and re-recorded the song. Oh, wow. um, and, and if you ever hear the original version, it's much straighter. On the on the new version, Elmo sort of shouted out the punchlines just in case you didn't know this was a punchline. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the that's the version that's played today. But after after about uh, three three or four years in independent distribution, um, Billboard showed on their holiday chart they, in the last week before Christmas they showed that leapfrogging ahead of White Christmas as number one on their wow. holiday chart and Man. at that point Epic Epic Records said okay we'll take it you know well uh, and I can I can attest to that song's popularity around that time because I remember getting ready for school and I would always listen to Y107 in Nashville and uh, it seemed like they played Grandma Got Run Over by the Reindeer you know, 10 times in the morning before I even made it to school. So I had it memorized so that I could sing it in the carpool. And so, uh, my, much, much to the delight of whoever's mom exactly, was driving the carpool. Yeah. I'm, sure. I'm sure. So that was the song that put the Y in Y107. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Um, but I mean, it was everywhere. It was turned into an animated special. I mean, there are countless reindeer plush toys that played the song. Were, were you, I mean, were you surprised at what a phenomenon this song became? Totally. I mean, my thought, I was so excited, you know, when I first got played on the radio, but I thought, well, I better enjoy this while it lasts because 
it's a novelty song. It's it's basically a joke set to music, and once you've heard a joke a couple times, you don't need to hear it anymore, and so it'll fade away. And I I think what really saved it was that kids huh. took it up, and there's always new kids coming along to tease their grandmothers with it. Um, I I didn't even want kids to hear it. You know, I was a little embarrassed by putting that line in there. You can say there's no such thing as Santa. So that was just to sing to drunks in a bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but at these at songwriter shows and things like that, when I when I play, it's really strange because all of a sudden people who are there to hear the writers of the songs, they do treat me like a celebrity. And when I start into that song, all of the cell phones come out and they're recording and all this stuff. And, right. and it's just so weird. And then, I, and then the set's over and I walk away and <laughs> go back to being me. <laughs> <laughs> you can say there's no such thing as Santa. But as for me and Grandpa, we believe. Merry Christmas. UK-based singer-songwriter and musician Chris Eaton first made his mark as a writer when Sir Cliff Richard began recording his material, including the UK holiday hit Savior's Day, which reached number one on the pop charts across the pond. In the U.S., however, Eaton's Christmas standard is Breath of Heaven, which has been recorded by Amy Grant, Donna Summer, Jessica Simpson, Sarah Groves, Vince Gill, and Melissa Manchester. Other artists who've recorded songs from Chris's catalog include Janet Jackson, Sheena Easton, Keith Urban, Patty Austin, and Grover Washington Jr. His greatest success has been in the contemporary Christian market, where he has earned BMI awards for radio hits such as Adore by Jackie Velasquez, My Heart Goes Out by Warren Barfield, and the Rachel Lampa singles Lift Me Up and Live For You. When Amy Grant released Breath of Heaven as the single from her multi-platinum selling Home for Christmas album, it topped the Christian charts and was named CCM Song of the Year by Billboard magazine. Must I walk this path alone? Be with me now. Be with me When I was a kid, my mom played the heck out of Amy Grant's first Christmas album every holiday season. And one of the more memorable songs in that record is Little Town, which is an updated melody for A Little Town of Bethlehem. Um, and of course, you are the writer of that song. And the, the first recording of that song was actually by Sir Cliff Richard. Um, and even though he's not as well known in the States from what I understand, he ranks behind only Elvis and the Beatles in terms of, of UK sales. He is a huge uh, star in the UK. Um, but even before, you know, Amy Grant fans became aware of you, you were working with Cliff, who has recorded a, a ton of your songs. Um, I'd be curious to, to hear about how that relationship first came about. 
Yeah, I mean, gosh, back in the day, um, you know, I, I grew up uh, listening to Cliff Richard, and uh, I guess he is, you know, the, the equivalent of Elvis around the rest of the world. And um, back in the uh, in the mid late seventies, he was it was really Cliff's heyday. He was having some massive hits in the UK, and um, yeah, it was it was an incredible story actually how I met him. Um, I, I was. Uh, uh, just out of out of school, actually, um, and I started writing songs. I'd been writing uh, songs when I was like fourteen or fifteen. Pretty pretty bad songs, I have to say. <laughs> but um, but I was you know I was a piano player. I never co-wrote for many years after that. I was just writing most days of my life and and um, performing whenever I could. And um, I actually uh, left my job and went on the road. Uh, with uh, a musician who was also an evangelist, and he, uh, he did a lot of gospel concerts with Cliff Richard at the time. His name was Dave Pope. Uh, Dave did a recording with Cliff Richard, who is now Sir Cliff Richard, and um, and Cliff uh, produced an album called Sail Away, and I wrote the total tra- uh, the title track um, of that album. And, and when Cliff heard it. Um, he he basically said to Dave, "Look, I want to meet Chris." So, um, it, which is, you know, when you think about it now, um, you know, for someone like uh, Whitney Houston or you know, to sort of like randomly choose a writer and say, uh, "I think you're great," you know, let, let's let's go for dinner. You know, yeah. it just wouldn't happen. And um, um, he asked me if I got any more. Uh, like that, and I said, I've got about 200, actually. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you record, find a way of recording four or five songs, put them on a tape, and this is like before, you know, recording was possible uh, mm. in a recording studio, unless you were very, very rich. And um, yeah. so I had no way of recording these songs uh, at all, other than a real, an old-fashioned reel-to-reel. And... Um, and so uh, it was just amazing because a week or a few days after I'd seen Cliff uh, on this tour, I did a concert at the Royal Hall and St. David's Hall in Cardiff um, with Dave Pope. And after the show, um, I happened to be sitting in an Indian curry house uh, opposite a guy called Rob Andrews, who owned a fantastic 24-track recording studio mm. in Herefordshire. Um, he just started talking to me and just chatted, and we we got on famously. And and he said, oh, Chris, I have to say, I really love that song "Sail Away" that you, that you wrote, that you sang and wrote tonight. Um, he said, Have you recorded it? And I said, No. He said, Well, why don't I get the band together and we all record five of your best songs, uh, and I'll just do it for you to help you along the your journey. Wow, man! So I sent the songs on a cassette tape to Sir Cliff, whose uh, secretary, Jill Snow, got in touch with me straight away and said, look, we've received the tape, I've sent it to Cliff, he'll make sure he listens to it and we'll get back to you. Um, Then there was like this deathly silence for uh, a week or two, which then became a year, um, which then became 18 months. Hmm. During that time, I, as you can imagine, was kind of getting... A little frustrated yeah, sure. that things had seemed to, you know, come together really well and, and exciting, but um, nothing had, had transpired from it. And uh, in the meantime, uh, I was 
in a band. I was doing um, a lot of solo gigs. I was I was doing semi-pro work, but I was also driving a taxi. Hmm. Uh, I drove a beer truck, delivering beer to various pubs in the area. <laughs> um, I worked in a fruit shop. You know, I just did whatever I needed to do to make the money. Um, and weekends, started doing session work in, in studios, playing and singing. Um, but all along, the sort of underlying thing was something's going to happen with Cliff, and it never did. It was a, you know, I was a Christian uh, uh, at that time and was very kind of aware of, of what perhaps God was leading me in. And and there were a lot of gray areas of, of what, if you like, I was holding on to. Hmm. And I felt a real, at that time, a real frustration, I think, with God. That it's like, well, how can you be in control of my life or, you know, when this is sort of was on a plate and didn't happen? And um, I started getting, a, not an anger, but a sort of definite frustration. Hmm. And then just one evening, uh, I went to my local Methodist church and I felt um, that the preacher was saying something. I can't remember what it was, but it was speaking to me directly. It was almost like he was kind of, that God was just saying to me. There was no one else in the room. It was just like, do you, do you trust me hmm. or don't you? You know, it was that simple. And, and, and I was like, well, God, I do trust you. I know who you are. And I, and I know that you've made music for me and that this is what I'm meant to be doing. And I don't know how or, or when, um, but I do trust you. And uh, so I, that night I came home and just in, you know, in my own bedroom, I just prayed a simple prayer of recommitment and, um, and just said, Lord, if you want me to be a window cleaner and... Uh, <laughs> no disrespect to window cleaners yeah, around right. the world, but you know, I would, uh, you know, I need to be doing what you want me to do. And and I, that night, I really felt a kind of burden lifted. Literally three days after that event, I had a phone call from Cliff Richard's secretary, wow. who then said, um, "Do you remember those that tape that you said? <laughs> you haven't thought uh, about like that. eighteen months ago." <laughs> right. And I'm like, uh, "Yeah." And um, <laughs> yeah. she said, "Well." So Cliff is, re- is recording four of the five. Oh songs. my gosh! Wow. And I was like absolutely, well, flabbergasted and yeah. overjoyed and and yet humbled, yeah. quite honestly, yeah. because I just felt that um, that the hand of God was on my life and and I and I knew that there was a direction in what I was doing, that and a focus. Um, and uh, I signed for his publishing company uh, to write exclusively for. So Cliff for the next three years. So wow. I then got three songs on his next album. Now you say, now you see me, now you don't, which included "Where Do We Go From Here," which was a a single, and and "Little Town." So is that the way that kind of uh, Savior's Day came about? He already knew that you were, you know, someone he was going to come to and ask for songs. And did he come and say, "Hey, I, I need a Christmas song"? Uh, no, actually, um, what happened with Savior's Day was I, I wrote it sort of randomly the previous year. Cliff Richard had had a massive Christmas hit with a track called Mistletoe and Wine. And, um, and Mistletoe and Wine, I, I always felt just personally on a musical level, was a bit too sentimental for me. Hmm. It made me think, you know what, I want to write something that, that perhaps Cliff could do hmm. um, that has just perhaps a little bit more of the truth of Christmas yeah. at its heart. You know, I wanted to build it into a classic Christmas song, if you like, in terms of the atmosphere 
mm. of the music. You know, yeah. I wanted to create the when I did the the uh, produced the demo for the song, it was almost identical to the final uh, version that Cliff did. It was, I mean, for that to get to number one was a real thrill yeah, for me. Yeah, sure. And, yeah. and beat Madonna to number one and beat uh, <laughs> Vanilla Ice to right, number right. one. That was, that was yeah. all good stuff. <laughs> Savior's Day kind of became a, a UK holiday standard, and um, Breath of, of Heaven kind of became a US holiday standard. Amy Grant, of course, recorded Breath of Heaven for her 1992 album, Home for Christmas, which was enormously successful. Um, and even though you had already established your Christmas songwriting credentials very much by that point, I understand that Breath of Heaven was not uh, a holiday song in its original form, and I'd, I'd like to hear a bit about the the journey that song took from inception to the version that that Amy released. Absolutely, um, you know, "Breath of Heaven." Um, I would say, honestly, is probably the most honest and most difficult song I've ever written, mm-hmm. um, and and yet the most fulfilling as well. Often during my writing in those days, uh, I would kind of just literally be on my own with a piano and lock myself away. And and I've always tried to write from the heart, uh, always, it, no matter whether I'm, you know, processing someone else's uh, life or dilemma or relationship that, yeah. that makes me think I need to write about it. Um, in this case, The Breath of Heaven, it was my own walk or should I say lack of walk uh, with my God and I felt uh, I'd been through uh, some problems in my marriage um, that had uh, for one reason or another uh, kind of set me on edge with my faith and and really put a lot of cracks in it Hmm. and I went through a period of time uh, during the writing of or before the writing of Breath of Heaven when I was I found it difficult to write and uh, and I was kind of cold with it, and it, and it got fairly desperate for me at one point. And um, and Breath of Heaven uh, was written really out of a deep, deep desire within me to kind of get back together with my faith and, and make sense of it, and and searching deeper within myself and and to find God in that. Hmm. And very often, if I couldn't pray. Um, I would just sit and play the piano, and I'd play melodies, and the, and playing the melody would would often just help me to focus on the presence of God, and and that actually I wasn't I wasn't alone. Yeah. Um, and and it's like the the beginning of the song is the is is just statements of who I knew God to be. Right. Uh, in my sort of attempt to get into that place where I it felt in, intimate again. Um, and then as I was writing the song, I started to break down, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I felt the presence of God, uh, uh come into the room, if you like. And, and, wow. and, uh, and Breath of Heaven chorus just came to me like a, like this pulse, this heartbeat. 
after the sort of musical um, syncopation of the verse, it needed that that chorus to be peaceful and sure and certain, sure-footed. Um, and that's exactly what it was. I just felt that pulse and that power and that soothing of that chorus come to me. When it doesn't create um, a lift in that moment, it actually kind of settles into the chorus. Exactly, exactly. It's just like this, you know, it just kind of like sways into this, into this river of peace. And, um, and I immediately um, thought, who could sing this song? Who do I know who I work with who could sing this song and would get it, would get the depth of it? Um, and I immediately thought of Amy. So um, I called her up that night and explained to her how I wrote the song and how it had broken me. And she just, at being the Amy that she is, you know, just listened intently and, and we're like brother and sister. And, you know, she, she just completely fell for the the story and said, right, I need to I need to hear this. You need to get it to me straight away. I don't care what version of it is, you know, do the roughest demo you, you need to do, just get it to me. Um, so I sent, sent her the song the next day. Within a week, she got it, and she was living with it, and she played it a hundred times, and she said it, it it had just, you know, really ministered to her. And uh, and she said, I, I, if you don't mind, I absolutely have to record this song. Hmm. So I said, Amy, it, it, it's for you. It's for you to record. Um, and that was the big, the first version of the song. Hmm. And then we... Uh, we started to rehearse up going on the road together uh, for the Heart in Motion tour. As you know, Baby Baby was a massive hit at mm -hmm. that time. And um, and there were four, she had four number ones, countrywide number ones, not Ooh. just in the gospel chart, but in mainstream that year. Um, and I had written uh, hats on the album. Uh, but Breath of Heaven w had been overlooked by the record label even though Amy had like really pressed it and said, look, this is very, very close to my heart, this song, I really want to do it on the record. And at one stage, um, you know, Breath of Heaven was going to be a, a focal point on the album. Yeah. And then it didn't get on the record, didn't make the record. Yeah. So um, it was amazing. And I, Amy always promised me she re recorded it. She said, I'm going to do this song no matter what happens. So we went on the road together um she uh she came to me when we had a break and she was pregnant with sarah and uh and she said chris you know i've i've just been feeling a real empathy uh in my pregnancy um to the way mary must have felt when she was carrying jesus mm. and breath of heaven has been ministering me to me through that the record label a&m have told me that next year we're doing a Christmas collection album and I'm going to do Breath of Heaven for that. Huh. Now, in the end, it wasn't a collection album. It was, the, it was, her, it was as you say, Home for Christmas. Um, and so she said, but I'd, I'd want to just maybe, you know, talk about you with you about changing the lyric to a, to a more story-based lyric of... of that empathy with Mary carrying the baby yeah. and what she must have gone through. And uh, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, so we literally, I think we were in uh, Amy's 
we're in a hotel room or in Amy's on the road somewhere in a bus and um, we just sat and went through the lyric of the verse we kept the chorus identical we took we took elements of what was already there because um, obviously the song was already complete beforehand yeah. um, but I, it made total sense to to um, to just transition the the meaning of the song into something that the whole world who knew the, the gospel the Christmas story could relate to wow. um, so you know when that happened and Amy did a we just did a little demo of it um, the record label fell in love with it seeing you know I remember I'll never forget actually Breath of Heaven CD or, or the Home for Christmas CD coming through that door in my house in England and that was the first time I heard the final mix of Breath of Heaven wow. and I just burst into tears but I mean, it's just—it's one of those songs that um, it doesn't sound old, old or new. It's yeah. timeless. Singer, actor, author, recovery advocate, and Songwriters Hall of Famer Paul Williams has penned hits such as We've Only Just Begun, Rainy Days and Mondays, and I Won't Last a Day Without You for the Carpenters, Out in the Country, Family of Man, and an old-fashioned love song for Three Dog Night, and You and Me Against the World for Helen Reddy. His songs have additionally been recorded by Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Ray Charles, David Bowie, Tony Bennett, Willie Nelson, R.E.M., Gladys Knight, Diana Ross, Sarah Vaughn, Curtis Mayfield, Gwen Stefani, Diana Krall, The Dixie Chicks, and others. Williams is perhaps best known for his movie songs and soundtracks. He and co-writer Barbara Streisand won an Oscar, a Grammy, and a Golden Globe for Evergreen, Love Theme from A Star Is Born. And he has earned Academy Award nominations for his musical contributions to Cinderella Liberty, Phantom of the Paradise, Bugsy Malone, and the Muppet movie, which included his now-standard Rainbow Connection. Williams later reunited with Jim Henson, pinning the songs for the classic children's film The Muppet Christmas Carol. Well, I went to, to England to work on the, uh, uh, as a guest on the Muppet, first season of The Muppet Show. Uh, by the time I showed up to be a guest on his show, uh, I was already a fan. I, yeah. I had been watching it. On the road with, with my band, the one thing that was constant was kind of cloudy mornings when we'd wake up, and and Sesame Street. I mean, right. Sesame Street was very, very hip. I mean, it was yeah. I mean, it's a children's show, yeah, but it's also everybody's show. And we loved the Cookie Monster. We loved, you know, we loved you know, Count Dracula, and and Bert and Ernie were like our spiritual guides out there. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I showed up and we just connected with Jim. It was, a, it was just there was there was a, you know, there's a 
line in one of the songs from the Muppet movie that describes the way I, I felt about Jim. There's not a word yet for old friends who just met. Was I, I wrote it for Gonzo when he, you know, when he, you know, when they break down in the desert and he's looking at the sky and he thinks I'm going to go back there someday. Yeah, it was. It, it could certainly be a, a description of, of that. That line could be a description of Jim and I. Mm-hmm. But Jim said we're going to do a, a special when we go back. We're shooting it up in Toronto, and, it, and it's called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And would would you be interested in, in writing the songs for it? And I, I, I didn't even need to see the book. I said, yes, on the spot. So I wrote words and music to that, wrote the underscoring as well. And, and uh, it's interesting because they've just finally, after 40-some years, have now are 40 years have, have released the soundtrack. It's wow. Which uh, which has had a, a phenomenal response. I, I'm, I mean, I'm a little stunned. I must admit, and grateful past language. It's just. Um, but anyway, we I wrote the songs for for uh, for Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas, and when it was done, uh, happily I was there, and I think it was kind of a an audition in some ways. Uh, but uh, I was asked to write the songs for the Muppet movie. And there's one in. In Emmett Otter called When the River Meets the Sea, that when Jim passed away, he actually asked that that be played at his funeral, which mm-hmm. it was in his, his will. Thus the winds of time shall take us with a sure and steady hand when the river meets the sea. But the first thing that I was asked to write after I got sober was that the songs for the Muppet Christmas Carol, and it's the perfect matchup of you know of time in my life to write that project because, like Scrooge, I was experiencing this amazing spiritual awakening. Hmm. So Disney wanted to, what we call the "I Am" song about Scrooge. We want to open up. We're going to see Scrooge's feet at the door when he comes out into the. You never really see the man; just his, the, you know, from the knee down, the legs, whatever, or a distant shot. But as he goes by, all these little creatures, they seem to get colder. Hmm. Until he finally turns around and says, "Bah humbug!" And so I, I'd read the original material, you know, the the, the the novel. I had I had read the script, of course. And what I basically did is I totally turned it over. I had, since I realized what the song needed to be about, probably a couple weeks had gone by. So I got around to walking out into a little park in Brentwood, sat down with a tape recorder and a and a Lawrence Block novel. I Lawrence Block novel was a good, just a bloody novel. Before I started reading the novel, I just, you know, closed my eyes and I, my basic thought was Big Amigo, which is either God or the creative force or whatever is in there, you know, and, and just said, you know, let me know when you have an idea. You know what I need? And I started reading this book. Uh-huh. And about three and about three pages in, I put it down and I went, okay, he's walking along. But a bump bump. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. I went, wow, that's not bad, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) It poured out of me. And I I shared that story with a a wonderful composer named Richard Bellas, who's on the ASCAP board. And I said, you know, it's amazing because I put it off and I put it off and I sit down and write it and it just poured out of me. Mm -hmm. He said, you didn't, you were not procrastinating. It was percolating. That's the difference. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. 
And there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed, is the one that we call Scrooge. Yeah. Unkind as any, and the wrath of many, this is Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grim. If they gave a prize for being me, the winner would be him. Old Scrooge, he loves his money cause he thinks it gives him power. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.